0: Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artisan
1: food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about
0: everything delicious. A very good weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I take the food and wine part of this radio show's name very seriously, just so you know. Ever since I started this show 17 years ago, it has been my goal and my mission to create food conversation that fits your life. So this show is an easy way to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment. It is a food-focused lifestyle show where every weekend we obsess over what to eat and drink. I also cover, in addition to food and wine and cocktails, travel, health, the environment, trends, and more. And I'm all about living the best life. So stay tuned and let me feed your soul. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. My podcasts are posted on iTunes under food and wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And you can find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I think we should talk seasonally for the start of this show for just a moment. How about you? Okay. We get oysters from Maine and Maryland gives us maple syrup and Delaware delivers mushrooms. And in my home state here in sunny California, we are graced with Meyer lemons. So we win (laughs) the Meyer lemon is a prized find and much more readily available than ever before. So when you get your hands on some of this sweet tart variety, uh, I think you should make the best of it. And it is Meyer lemon season and they are sweet and luscious. So I thought that I would share some inspiration for the lovely lemon because what better way to welcome spring than with the lovely lemon in all of its glory. Alice Waters at Chez Panisse back in the 1970s made the Meyer lemon her prized ingredient, but the fruit was actually discovered in China, uh, the home of many fine citrus fruits, in fact. And it was brought to the U.S. by a Department of Agriculture plant breeder named Frank Meyer. And it was a wildly popular backyard fruit in the 1920s. But now is the perfect time to revel in them. And as the harvest peaks and the farmer farmer's market stalls and the produce aisles, and if you're lucky, if you have a backyard tree, um, are all loaded with fruit, um, I thought you might want to know more about the Meyer lemon. It is a cross between a lemon and a sweet orange imported to the U.S. from China, as I mentioned, over a hundred years ago. And by the way, the Meyer lemon is in my opinion, furiously addictive. It looks different than a traditional Eureka lemon. It's rounder. It has a, um, it has a rounder edge on both sides, in fact, without that pronounced point at the blossom end that other lemons have. And it has a golden orange peel that is thinner and more delicate with a very soft, supple texture. And Meyer lemons are noticeably juicier, but most importantly, it's all about the taste. Meyer lemons are sweeter and less acidic than other lemons. So if you tend to have a slightly less acidic palate, well, they offer that bright flavor without the pucker. And that's why I love them. And back in my restaurant days, the chefs that I worked for always loved Meyer lemons. I tell a story about having an opportunity to stage or um, learn from the great chef, Charlie Palmer, and he loves them too. And when he stands or or the experience I had, when he stood at the line where all of those delicious dishes in his glory of restaurants come out of or from in the kitchen, he would add a drop of Meyer lemon juice, just a, a single drop to most of the dishes, it added that as the French say, je ne sais quoi, uh, once you bit into whatever it was, that bite of uh, beautiful fish or the pasta dish, there was a freshness to it that you couldn't put your finger on, but it was his sort of secret ingredient that he kept in his arsenal. Um, And from what I understand, he still does it today. I saw him a couple of years ago at Pigs and Pinot, his big piggy event. And I asked him, chef, do you you still do the drop a lemon trick? And he put his finger up to his mouth and said, shh, don't tell. And so I've ruined that. uh, But I know that he would be proud. Uh, The juice and the peel of a Meyer lemon is beautifully floral and it's sweet and so you want to use the entire lemon you can actually dry the peel and grind it in your spice grinder and then you can savor the season you could squeeze the juice and freeze it in ice cube molds so that you always have it on hand and when it comes to storing meyer lemons Because the peel is thinner and more delicate, you want to keep them refrigerated. They don't have the same shelf life that a Eureka lemon does, say, left on the counter. I put them in a plastic bag and I keep them in the fridge and they'll last a good amount of time. Now, if you happen to have a Meyer lemon tree and you have them in abundance, then you make lemonade and you could freeze that too. Um, Or you call me because I want to share your bounty. And then since the lemon is a workhorse, there are lots of practical applications that you can use it for as well. Yes, of course, you squeeze it over sautéed fillets of your favorite fish or especially over fried fish. I love a Meyer lemon. So good. I actually like to caramelize the lemons that I use for squeezing over a dish by cutting a lemon in half and placing it cut side down in a hot sauté pan. I do this on the grill during the summer season as well. The cut side turns golden and it gets a little bit of caramelization and the flavor is perfect paramount that way. You get a little smokiness, um, a burst of flavor offset with the tart bite and oh, I don't know, it's just so delicious. You could always zest the lemons before you juice them and then add that chopped zest to a compound butter or on top of your yogurt or berries for breakfast or dessert And then Meyer lemons are especially wonderful at keeping apples or avocados from browning. Um, They're beautiful as an addition to the fruit salad that we all love. Um, How about roasting a chicken with Meyer lemon? Oh, yes. Or fish on a bed of Meyer lemon slices and fennel for fabulous flavor. And then what do you do with the lemons when you're done zesting and squeezing them? Well, with those rinds, You use the spent skins of any juiced lemon to help degrease pans or clean your cutting boards, the wooden ones, or your countertops. Oh yes, they have so many uses and I hope that you will put them to good use. So now you know, Meyer lemons are exceptional this season and cheers to them. I make a a luscious lemon curd that is made extra special from Meyer lemons, and I will gladly share the recipe and a tutorial on curd because spring is curd season, don't you think? And if you email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com, I will gladly send you the recipe and tips. Okay, it's time for food news this week. You've heard it time and time again. I know breakfast is considered to be the most important meal of the day, but so many people still skip it. And if you're considering the health consequences of skipping breakfast, let me share some new research. Skipping breakfast has now been proven to increase the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. This risk continues, it increases as you skip breakfast day after day, according to a review recently published in the Journal of Nutrition. The research actually found that the risk of diabetes increased for each day of the week that a person skipped breakfast. Missing breakfast once a week was associated with a 6% increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And the number skyrocketed from there with those who skip breakfast four to five days a week with a 55% increased risk for type 2 diabetes. So long story short, make oatmeal or an egg or eat some fruit because studies prove that you will be better for it. And I think it's always a good reminder. And please don't touch your dial, because we have really delicious conversation coming up this hour. Up next, Chef Edward Lee has stopped by. Yes, you know him and love him from his Emmy award-winning show, Mind of a Chef, and his Washington, D.C. lauded restaurants. Well, Chef Edward Lee took some culinary travel, and he is talking about this wonderful melting pot of cuisine that we have in the U.S., and you won't want to miss the conversation. He's a, a delight and a genius. Also, later in the hour, we are cooking some of Hawaii's favorites. Yes, Loco Moco and, oh, kalu'a Pig and Mochi Galore in your radio. So stay tuned. I'm Chef Jamie Nguyen, and there's lots more fabulous food and insightful commentary right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen. in your radio. We do have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show. And you know Chef Edward Lee from his Emmy-nominated TV show, Mind of a Chef. His restaurant, Mr. Lee's at Succotash in Washington, D.C., named 2018 Best New Restaurants in America. Edward was born in South Korea, raised in Brooklyn, and has lived many years in Kentucky. He spent two years traveling the country, seeing the foods that illuminate the way that we cook and eat and live in America today. And he has written a love letter called Buttermilk Graffiti, all about his culinary travel adventure. It's filled with the rich history of American food and where we all come from. And I am delighted to have Chef Edward Lee here and in your radio to share his journey. Welcome, Chef. It's so nice to have you grace this Thank show. You. Yes. And the book is beautiful. Tell us what you saw and learned. Uh, an overall synopsis, if you would, over these two years of travel. It's fascinating to me how you wove the stories and the recipes really into what is a melting pot of cuisine today.
1: Yeah, and, and, and you know, I often tell people, like, if you sometimes if you want to truly understand a, a, a food or a dish, you have to get out of the kitchen, and you have to just look at the people and, and the surroundings and the culture. And so what I really wanted to do was to just, drive around the country, hmm. look at all these pockets of, of nuggets of, of immigrant restaurants and ethnic peoples and, and just get into their culture and tell their stories, figure out why they came here to this country um, because really, the sto- to me, the story of American cuisine is the story of immigration. Right? Yes. So, so if we look at the early immigrants and the Italians, the Germans and the Greeks, the hmm. amount of the, the mark that they left on American cuisine is, is you know, it's, it's unmistakable. Then it's the Chinese, the Mexicans. And now we're living in this new era where you have Nigerian cuisine, Cambodian cuisine, things that are very unfamiliar to us as Americans, but mm-hmm. I guarantee you, you know, Nigerian food is already becoming one of the hottest cuisines in America, and they will leave their mark. And, and words like jollof rice, which may sound foreign to us now, in the next generation will be household
0: words. And I love that it becomes commonplace like that. I think it's a testament to the history of this country and to the richness of all of the people that make it up. You should know, Chef, that um, I was raised in a Jewish household, but if you ask me what I want to have for dinner tonight, um, I would choose Korean or some sort of Chinese <laughs> dumpling house over anything else. I happen to love ethnic cuisine, and... You are the story of immigration. Your parents immigrated to the U.S. and they used the recipes that they employed in Korea, but then they incorporated the ingredients here and they made us uh, more aware of the ingredients from Korea that are now readily available at our fingertips. Yep. And it is an amazing yeah. melting pot. Uh, you talk about the the places you've been, but you are very much deeply rooted in, in your family culture.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and, and part of the book was, you know, the book started out as a travel log sort mm-hmm. of, you know, informational book. And so many times in the writing of this book, someone would say something or mention something or tell a story that would remind me of my childhood or remind me of the struggles that my parents went through. And so mm-hmm. it just, it was so touching and moving that I would, start to think about my, and eventually the whole book became not a memoir of sorts, but there are points in the book where I touch upon my past and my history and my family because through the process of writing this book, it was impossible not to sort of touch upon things that I went through, my personal experiences, and and so um, it all kind of melded together. Um, but yeah, I mean that 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 is the story. You know, it's my story too, right? Yes. I, I'm an immigrant, and, and and I came here, and you know, but I'm also now an immigrant of Korean parents who cook Southern food in in <laughs> D.C. and and Louisville, Kentucky. Right. And and I think, to me, or, or I always tell people, like, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. <laughs> I'm not the best chef in the world. If I can come from Brooklyn and be a Southern chef in Louisville, Kentucky like, you can truly do anything in this country. You can really, what I love so much about this place is that you can reinvent yourself and you Mm. can do whatever you want. You know, you don't, you're not imprisoned by the identity that you were born into. Um, You can really explore. And and, and if anything, I want people to just go out there and explore. Mm. And and through exploration, through adventures, um, you get to know about other cultures and learn about other cuisines But the more you learn about them, I really do think the more you learn about yourself.
0: And that's what I loved about reading your book. And I'm about three quarters of the way through. But it is an homage to those that have come here and made something of themselves and what the American dream is all about. And you talk about reinvention. It's also the inspiring story of being able to create and recreate your mm-hmm. life and and build upon those family stories and the families are ever evolving we talk about your korean heritage and how you've stayed close to that and then your wife and her german heritage right yeah uh, and so now there's new influence
1: and now my daughter is you know has both and, and <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's a fascinating thing to see uh, and and my wife uh, is in one of the chapters when I explore German food.
0: Yes, I was um, just getting it's to that.
1: Fascinating to see. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> you know she's been in uh, this country for seven generations. Wow. You know, and, hmm. and I've been in this country for one generation. Right. right. So so that already is a way different uh, uh, look at food. And and you know what I see in, in in my wife and her family is you know they're German, but they don't speak German anymore. They hmm. don't travel to Germany. They've lost the, the, the rituals and the traditions and the religion. They really don't have anything that's German anymore. No, But, but they still have sauerkraut.
0: I was just going to say. And
1: that's the last thing, <laughs> yes. That, that, that they, they hold on to that so dearly. Oh. And, and I always say, listen, my daughter's going to, I, I speak somewhat Korean. My daughter's going <laughs> to speak less. Her daughter's going to speak even less. But I guarantee you she'll be eating my kimchi recipe. Yes. Because I will pass that on for generations. And and that, there's something in that culinary DNA that we need as a link to our history. Because we have to know, we all want to know where we come from.
2: Of course. And
1: and that link is so important. As we, you know, as more generations pass, it it actually becomes more important to hold on to these old recipes.
0: And I will quote you before I let you go. There's this wonderful line from the book. Um, And I quote, food can be a bridge and the best, most thrilling dishes can result from joining two different worlds. Unquote. I think it is a beautiful read. The book is called Buttermilk Graffiti. My pleasure. The author, Edward Lee, you know, chef, of course, from uh, his well-known restaurants, uh, from his uh, television presence and more. And the book is available now, written by chef Edward Lee, Buttermilk Graffiti, available on Amazon and in bookstores Uh, nationwide you can follow chef on social at chef edward lee i can't wait to pay it forward i am going to uh, pass the book on and share it with another chef edward and we will spread the wealth Um, kudos to you once again thank you
1: thank you
0: thank you for having me Uh, i look forward to having you back as the delicious conversation continues taking a deeper look into the food world we'll be right back world of food directly to your radio chef Jamie Gwen here from Maui native and popular food blogger Alana Kaiser comes a gorgeous cookbook of fresh and sunny recipes from Hawaii reflecting the major cultures that have influenced local Hawaiian food over time Chinese Japanese Portuguese and Korean to name a few Alana highlights the rich history of the culture and the cuisine of Hawaii and it is a breathtaking cookbook filled with crave-worthy recipes. Interweaving poke and shoyu chicken and loco moco with regional history and local knowledge, Aloha Kitchen, Alana's first cookbook, is a hit. A number one new release on Amazon, by the way. So with her Aloha charm, award-winning blogger Alana Kaiser is here to dish. Alana, aloha to you.
2: Aloha, Jamie.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Um, the book is really beautiful. Congratulations to you. And I love that you tell your story at the beginning. Can you describe the warmth of the word aloha to start, please? Because as you explain, it means many things.
2: It does. It means so much. I mean, mm. aloha has just a full range of meanings, it can mean love and affection kindness and compassion. There's that mercy and sympathy note. It's also used as a greeting or farewell. So I could say aloha and you say hello, or I could say aloha and <laughs> say goodbye.
0: Goodbye, right. And it is used in interchangeably, but it has a depth to it. When I visit Hawaii and most often Maui, I feel that sort of slower pace and that peacefulness and everyone seems friendly and says aloha. And, you know, I, I love that feeling. Um, I think that has a lot to do with the cultural influence as well. And if you would talk to us about Hawaiian cuisine and what it's really made up of historically.
2: When we're talking about the food in Hawaii, I like to refer to it as this local Hawaii food. Uh, it is influenced by obviously the Hawaiians, but there are lots of other groups that have influenced our culture food culture as well. So there are Hawaiians, there's Westerners, the Chinese, Japanese, Portuguese, Koreans, and Filipinos. There are a few other groups that came over. But when I, you know, really dug deep into this book, I felt like these were the groups that I wanted to focus
0: on. And they've all brought something different to make for what I think is a very, um, fusion style cuisine right because in a lot of the dishes that you highlight you can taste from different flavors of that cultural influence uh, lots of asian influence as you alluded to as well but there's like a a melding a melting pot of flavor in a lot of hawaiian cuisine you can mix and match right
2: yeah and i think what's nice is you know all these groups they brought over their own unique flavors and ingredients and dishes but when we ourselves you know local hawaii people eat these foods you don't necessarily look at it and say, like, this is Japanese or Chinese. It's just local. So, yeah, there, it's just like this nice, I'd like to call it like a plate lunch, but yes. yeah, like a melting pot or, of sort.
0: Okay, let's talk the plate lunch, how it came to be. There's something wonderful about a, a the concept of a plate lunch to me because, Alana, I don't always want my own dish. I want like a bite of yours and a bite of mine, <laughs> and a bite of hers. <laughs> and so you do get a lot of different tastes in a plate lunch. That is very traditional Hawaiian.
2: Yeah, it is it is this, like, local food thing that's very <laughs> special to Hawaii where I'd say it's, like, the true representation of what that culture is and the diverse population. So, you know, you can get this plate, which you've got a protein, you can you can pick chicken katsu, kalua pig, beef stew, the list goes on. Or you could pick a couple of those and make it a mixed plate. Then mm. you have rice. It's usually almost always steamed white rice. It, if, if you're feeling healthy, then you can get like a scoop of hoppa rice, which would be half brown rice, half white rice. Love it. And then you always have this, I like to, I like to call it a mayo-y carbohydrate. Yes. But basically, it's just this good mac salad, which is a macaroni salad tossed in, in a lot of mayonnaise.
0: Yes. And it tends to be slightly sweet. Like my favorite shrimp truck on the way to the hotel from the airport in Maui, what has to be probably one of the best food trucks I've ever been to, their mac salad tends to skew sweeter. So it's like dessert on the plate with the protein.
2: I love that. Well, that's what's nice about Hawaii in general is like, you've got this full range of recipes. They're all these very they're rooted in your history, your family history. And so, like, one family is like, you definitely need the sweetness. The other family is like, no, it's just mayonnaise, <laughs> salt, and macaroni, and right. that's it. And so I love that you get to pick and choose.
0: Yes, I do too. And then there is a vegetable to ba- for balance, right?
2: Yeah. You know, not everyone's going to put the vegetable on there, but if you are, then you usually get some kind of nice salad or you've got some pickled vegetables, mm. like maybe it's kimchi or takuan, which is like a pickled daikon root, I love or it. namasu. Yes. So you, yeah, you, you, you could get a little veggie if you want it.
0: Yes. And then you have this wholesome, wonderful plate with which to pick from. And it has all these fabulous flavors. So now you've made me hungry. Let's cook, please. <laughs> you t- okay. Yes. You talk about um, poke at length in the book, um, in the poo-poo chapter, right, appetizers. And that is very traditional in Hawaii. The the start of the meal has a a wonderful importance, I should say.
2: Yeah, I'd say it's like a very casual entry point to your dining experience, right? Like It's like you're not just like let's jump in and get a salad going. It's more like, let's snack and chat and relax, maybe play some music. And so that's kind of where the poke comes in.
0: Right, and I love it that way. But poke in Hawaii tastes so incredible to me. And maybe it's, you know, the air and the the ocean and, and all of that. You make a traditional poke, right? Shoyu ahi poke.
2: I do. And, you know, going back to the way it tastes, I think, you know, we... We literally live in the source. So your fishermen are likely catching that fish Mm. day off, like day caught fresh off the boat and they're coming in and cutting it right there for you. Mm. So you're going to get some of the best poke you've ever had in Hawaii.
0: Yes. And the Hawaiian salt, which I know you use exclusively lends itself to that very traditional flavor. Um, And then um, gochugaru, you use a, a good amount of talk about some of the spices and the seasonings, please, that are traditional to Hawaiian flavor.
2: You know there aren't a lot of traditional spices. I'd say I'd say there are lots that have come in to play. So I like to use gochugaru because it's just a little extra special. It's it's a finer kind of grind, but the thing is is I use it for my kimchi, and why wouldn't I use it in everything else? Right, of course. So I wouldn't say that gochugaru necessarily is traditional. Uh, You could absolutely use something like togarashi, which I do. Mm, Uh, Yes. But the the number one thing is you've got to use Hawaiian salt. Right. Soy sauce is a must. You probably will have a couple of different brands Mm -hmm. because they do different things. Uh, sesame oil is largely used
0: yes and I love toasted sesame oil by the way on everything (laughs) so do I yes I really do Um, and then um, anything else staple pantry item I mean I've got a full uh,
2: section
0: yes you do in the book I know I'm going to create a Hawaiian pantry based solely on it and for those that don't know Gochugaru. We know gochujang um, because it's grown in popularity as a chili paste, but gochugaru is the chili powder, is the powder form of it. Um, And um, I know it and I happen, Korean red chili, I happen to love the flavor. So um, the poke comes together. You're big on raw onion. In the Hawaiian culture, it's actually very appreciated as a flavor to offset the richness or the depth of something, right?
2: Yeah, but what's nice about the raw onions in Hawaii is they're they're most often times Maui onions, which are these sweet onions. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, they do have a bit of bite, but they're so mild in comparison to like a typical white
0: onion. onion round. Yes, that yeah. I I agree. Now they have a sweetness to them and they are highlighted in a fern salad. So I have the fondest memories of a fern salad at Star Noodle in Maui, one of my favorite restaurants there, and I cannot get enough of it, Alana. When I literally on a visit when I'm craving it, I will eat it day after day. And I don't see a lot of fern salads other places. So, can can we talk about this sort of native green?
2: Yeah. Uh, so it's a foraged fern shoot. Uh, we we typically call it pohole, and it is this young fern shoot that you just you can snap it right out when you're walking on a hike. I'd say that the texture on the inside is is a bit like okra, and the outside.
0: A lot like a young asparagus. Alana, we'll take a quick pause when we come back. More Hawaiian favorites right after this. Just tuned in. You're late. Alana Kaiser is here and her first cookbook just released number one rated on Amazon called Aloha Kitchen. We are dishing about uh, the beauty of Hawaiian cuisine and its many influences And we know, Alana, that Hawaii has an affinity for pork, as you say. So Kahlua pork seems only appropriate to discuss. And we're very grateful that you created a roasting pan version, by the way. I I love the magical pit experience, but it's not always doable.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to dig a giant pit in your backyard. Thank you. So it might be fun. (laughs) It might be.
0: It might be. But you've recreated it in a roasting pan, and you really do get the same flavor profile, you say.
2: Yeah, you know, this was one of the most enjoyable recipes for me to develop, because once you experience that emu, which is that... Freshly dug pit, and that whole experience of that pig coming out and all the aromas that are floating around in the air. Mm -hmm. You just want to figure out how to do it in your home. And so that's what I set out to do with this roasting pan. And so you don't need a lot of ingredients, but the thing that I think you absolutely need to try to get are some banana leaves, or if you can't find those, some tea leaves, because they just add that extra layer that you can't quite pinpoint. If you're not adding it, you you know something's wrong. This is what's missing.
0: I think Kahlua pork is like the ultimate weekend project, especially as the weather warms. And at my Asian markets, I can find frozen banana leaves. So it's really very doable. And it's that smoky deliciousness with the fat from the pork that is just... Out of this world. And I want you to know I intend to make your recipe. And I will give you all the credit. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, Thank of you. course. Um, okay. We talked about a, a plate lunch earlier. Um, and and the concept of a, a, a Hawaiian you know, mixed plate per se. But shoyu chicken is your favorite, I believe. Is that right?
2: It is one of my favorite plate lunch options. I feel like I couldn't pick a favorite. It's like asking a parent to pick their favorite child. Salad. Like it's just impossible. Right, of course. <laughs> but Shoyu chicken is way up there. And uh, the best thing about it is it's so easy to make in your home.
0: Okay, so talk about it's it's an umami bomb, really.
2: It is. It is a massive flavor bomb. Yeah. Shoyu is the first ingredient I list in the in the recipe and it's just Shoyu. You've got some water obviously to offset that super strong shoyu flavor, honey, dark brown sugar. You've got a little ginger, some garlic, onion. And then really, it's that's about all you really need to do a good shoyu chicken. And you just braise it.
0: And what I was surprised by is that it doesn't have three days of marination involved in it. I think, you know, those of us that love to cook, all of us, the idea of such big flavor comes with days of preparation, not with shoyu chicken.
2: No. I mean, you need about an hour in total. And it, most of that's hands-off time. And you've got the best shoyu chicken you've ever had. Yeah.
0: Very impressive. I, I love the idea. And I, I will make that as well. And then before I let you go, um, we have to have dessert, something sweet. <laughs> um, and I did not know from butter mochi. I know from mochi. But I was Fascinated because on the page it looks like a lemon bar, Alana. Uh,
2: you know, it it looks like a lemon bar. I'd have to tell you though, the texture is very different. Yes. Have you had you've had mochi before? Yes, and I love
0: the sticky rice, glutinous. Yes, that that, that's a textural phenomenon.
2: So this is like next level mochi. It is something you'll find at every potluck in Hawaii, every birthday party. I mean, any special occasion you can think of there is a good chance you'll find some butter mochi if not a couple of different versions of butter mochi and it's so simple to pull it together i mean you need a bowl and a whisk Mm -hmm. and a wooden spoon and that's it that's all you need to make this butter mochi and you get this perfectly chewy slightly sticky Mm. and just dense enough coconut custardy glutinous rice cake Let's
0: call it that. (laughs) Okay, yum. The book is really full of passion um, and beautiful recipes that are very doable um, to bring the flavors of Hawaii alive. And for so many of us, memories of glorious vacations and experiences and uh, the wonderful food experiences that we've had um, in Hawaii. And you've brought those to our table. So thank you. Uh, for sharing your passion. In Aloha Kitchen, Alana Kaiser takes you into the homes and restaurants and farms of Hawaii, exploring the culture and the influence that have made the regional dishes culinary sensations. It is a beautiful book filled with aloha spirit. So please check it out. You'll find it on Amazon, a number one bestseller just releasing, and you can follow Alana at Kaiser. K-Y-S-A-R for all of her culinary escapades. Um, Alana, hurricane popcorn soon, you and I.
2: Yes, thank okay. you so much, Dave.
0: And so that brings us to the end of another hour of truly great taste. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the week. Spring is just starting, but the berries are already so sweet and this past week, I bought the most delicious blackberries and I can't seem to get enough of them. So whether you have fresh berries or even frozen, you can usher in spring with my two ingredient blackberry frozen yogurt in a flash, as I like to call it. It is instant gratification and you will need frozen berries for this recipe. So I suggest you buy a bevy of them, the fresh ones at the farmer's market and you lay them out. Could be blackberry, raspberry, even blueberry, lay them out in a single layer on a cookie sheet and throw the cookie sheet in the freezer. We call this IQF or individually quick frozen. So they don't stick together. Then you throw them in a bag and you keep them on hand in the freezer, but they're at the peak of the sweet season. I use Greek yogurt in this recipe and it turns out sweet, tart and insanely creamy. So for my two ingredient blackberry frozen yogurt in a flash, you will need three cups of frozen blackberries, one cup of vanilla flavored Greek yogurt, and then a a couple of additions if you like. All you do is combine the frozen berries, and the vanilla Greek yogurt in your food processor, and you process it until it's creamy. It takes a few minutes. You can add a little bit of honey, a bit of sugar, maybe some lime or lemon zest for extra flavor. And there you have it, frozen yogurt in a flash. I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend where I promise there is lots more scintillating and scrumptious conversation in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope you continue to eat well.